The reading is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoahim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoahim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guards took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord.
I was delighted when I came in this morning um, that we were going to be singing uh, Noah Built the Most Enormous Boat. It's one of my favorite, all-time favorite children's songs, but in our house we call it the Song of the Minor Indiscretions. It lists a number of uh, Bible heroes and talks about them living their life for God, but fails to mention that they were murderers, adulterers, and got a bit drunk. Daniel is the exception. (laughs) No, Jesus is too. (laughs) But it's a great song, uh, and it does tell us a lot about the Bible heroes, and I'm always encouraged when I read the Bible that it is full of people that mess up and make mistakes. Uh, But today, we are looking at Daniel. Roger's slightly of the opinion that Daniel just was better at hiding uh, his errors than the others, Uh, but we don't know about his errors. We're going to look at his life Uh, and uh, what we can learn from that. Shall we pray? Father God, I pray that you would speak to us today powerfully and effectively, that your word would challenge us and grow us, that we would become more like you and bring more honor to you. Amen. There are power struggles all around us, aren't there? When we turn on the TV and watch the news, uh, we have... uh, Brexit negotiations, which seem like one power struggle after another. Trump jostling with different superpowers almost every day. In our families, there are power struggles. Uh, In our schools, in our workplaces. People desperately trying to assert their authority. Some people do that because they think they have a right to it. Some because they want it. But we all engage in some kind of power struggles throughout our lives. Power is so important to us. And I think the book of Daniel, uh, not just this chapter, we'll be looking a bit wider as well, shows us how we manage that. How do we live in a land of power struggles and a world where power is so important? And Daniel and his friends at this point are displaced. They're moved to a strange land, not through their own choice. Jerusalem's been defeated The Babylonians were the mighty military power of this moment in history. And Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and no doubt others were transported to the capital of Babylon to learn all things Babylonian. And I guess it's been a common uh, strategy of superpowers throughout history to take the best of the young minds of the, um, the countries they've invaded and either indoctrinate them or win them over so that the, the countries that they come from can be subdued. And on the face of it, things aren't looking good in this passage for God's people. They're defeated, they're humiliated, they're overpowered. And God's people must have been asking, where is God in all of this? But Daniel's lesser story about the defeat of God's people at the hands of its neighbor, and it's a more a lesson about God's sovereignty and the impact of individual obedience. Put yourself in the shoes of Daniel and his friends, and I think it might have been terrifying to be taken from your home. These aren't grown men. These are most likely teenagers, or at least at their late teens, early 20s. They're taken from their homes, not knowing what's in store for them. As it turns out, it's actually not as bad as they might have imagined. They get a three-year university course with board and lodgings thrown in without any student debt when they come out and they're promised a job. 
It doesn't all seem as bad as it might have when they were taken. But the lessons that we learn from Daniel are applicable today. We may be a free people, we may elect our government, but the context in which we live can be as hostile as Babylon to our gospel. Sometimes people can be hostile directly, but often more in a passive-aggressive way or just plain dismissive of what we believe. And we will no doubt face situations like these young men where we are called to compromise our integrity, where we're called to make difficult decisions, where we are put in a position where we have to choose God or some kind of action that we don't want to do. And I think as we look at Daniel, there's, there's a little equation that might help us to remember uh, what he does. So if we take our current situation, plus a good knowledge of God's word, plus personal obedience, then the glory will go to God. Let me say that again. If we take our current situation, regardless of what it is, wherever we are right now, we throw in a good knowledge of God's word, we throw in personal obedience, then the glory will go to God. And that's the message that we learn from Daniel in this passage. So let's look at it. Firstly, our first lesson is that they trust that God is in control despite appearances. I guess to the average Babylonian and the average Jew and probably many of the other nations around, Nebuchadnezzar must have seemed untouchable. And as we look around our world now, we can sometimes feel like there are powers and situations and authorities who behave as they like, when they like, treating people however they like. And to the ancient Jews, it must have seemed a desperate situation. The book of Lamentations in the Bible gives us a little window into the desperation of God's people in exile. This wasn't a happy time for them. Yet right from the start, the author of Daniel is keen for us to see who's really in control. It seems like Babylon is in control, that Nebuchadnezzar asked for the cream of the Jerusalem crop and he gets it. How comfortable Nebuchadnezzar should have felt in his successes, yet Daniel reveals how little he understands. Nebuchadnezzar's orders are completely implemented. Yet in reality, this passage shows us that the very control he's certain of is not his. Who is in control? Well, it's not another human power. It's the God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, who is really in control. Look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. The Lord delivered. Right from the start, God is sovereign. He is choosing this situation. Who's in control? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. Despite having all the power in the known world, having wealth, might, intellectual resources to call upon, despite seemingly being untouchable, he is not in control. And that's a solace to us, isn't it? That when things feel out of our control, we know that God is in control. 
And Daniel's situation was desperate on so many levels. His country and people were beaten, oppressed. He had, been, he had as much control over his own life in many respects as a slave would have. Yet Daniel and his friends understand that God is control, in control. And you'll be familiar with the, the words in Jeremiah 29, 11, where uh, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. But when God spoke those words, his people were in the midst of exile. God wasn't promising his people an easy ride. He was promising that he rules over every situation, that there is nowhere beyond him both good and bad, and he will bless his people. And I wonder, who is in control of our lives? Who's in control of our church? Who is in control of our country? Who do we think is in control? Where does the power lie? It's not always where we think it is. And I wonder, depending on your circumstances, sometimes it's easy to feel like you have no control over the things in your life that other people or circumstances or situations hem you in, that there is no way out and you can feel trapped and oppressed and helpless. Or perhaps you're at the other end of the the spectrum and you feel like you're completely in control, that you call the shots, that you're the one in the driving seat, you make the choices, your career, you have influence and sway and you're not hemmed in at all. Well, I think Daniel's first lesson to us is that neither of these situations are true. On our own, we are neither powerless nor powerful. Yes, there are situations, of course, that we can control, and there are situations that are outside our control. Daniel testifies to this. If you read the book of Daniel, he, he ebbs and flows in his influence. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's tiny. But the difference between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is that Daniel understands that it is in fact God who is in control, however desperate things look. And Daniel chooses to honor God regardless of the situation he's placed in. Are you honoring God? Am I honoring God? Does my life bear witness to a God who is sovereign? but we can rest assured that he is in control. Now, our second lesson uh, from these friends is that they resolve to honor God regardless of the consequences. So how did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah respond to the attempt to assimilate them into the Babylonian way of life? Well, I think it's fascinating that they neither wholeheartedly reject it or accept it. It's often been said of Daniel that he was no compromise. But that's not entirely true. He was willing to compromise, but there were things he wasn't willing to compromise on. They don't look at the passage. They don't, for example, object to their names being changed. Their old names honored God. Their new names honored the gods of the Babylonians. But they don't object to that. They didn't refuse to learn the Babylonian language and literature. 
But they did resolve, verse 8, and the word resolve, I think, is really important, not to defile themselves with the royal food and wine. Now, I don't know why in particular this was. Maybe it was that the food was offered to idols. Maybe that it was listed amongst the the forbidden foods for the Jews. And the Jews were a set-apart people, and their food laws were part of that set-apartness. But whatever the reason... This is where Daniel and his friends chose to draw the line. They would not defile themselves with the food that they were offered. They became vegetarians, perhaps even vegans. They resolved to honor God through the food they ate. They decided. It didn't happen by accident. They didn't kind of fall into this decision. They made a choice and they knew it could have ramifications, but they still made it. They knew that this was a costly decision because if we look at the the passage, it tells us that the man that was in charge of them knew that this could cost him his life. So what could it have cost them? Their life. But they knew that God was in control of the wider situation and that they should honor him. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, it's not just this situation, but we know the famous story of Shavrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and then in chapter 6, the lion's den. All of these men choose to honor God. Each time they come up against something that they know will dishonor God, they make a stand. Honoring God for them is more important than their own lives. And if if you flick forward to chapter 3, which is potentially the only example historically of musical statues being turned into an act of idolatry, um, where when the music plays, uh, no, it's when the music stops, they have to bow down, no, plays, they have to bow down and worship the king. In fact, next time you're at a children's party, think on that. Sleeping lions is also appropriate too. The book of Daniel, I think, is perfect for a children's party. Um, (laughs) but they draw the line they refuse and they take the consequences chapter 6 Daniel refuses to stop praying to God despite knowing the consequences and he ends up in the lion's den each time they take on board the consequences each act is years apart this book spans four different rulers But throughout the time, these men are honor God and God honors them. And we know as readers that each time there is a miraculous happening that protects them. In the case of the food, uh, they end up being the healthiest by far. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are protected from the flames and Daniel from the lions. Yet it's important to remember that each of these people didn't know that that was the outcome when they made the choice. They didn't know that was guaranteed. And in chapter 3, listen to these words, verses 16 to 18. Just before the three men are thrown into the furnace, it says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
But even if he does not, but even if he does not, I love this verse. In one short sentence, they acknowledge both God's ability to save them, but acknowledge that it is his choice. These men know he's powerful enough to do it, but they're not guaranteed that he will save them at this point. But they choose to honor him regardless. They do not need history to go in their favor to choose the king of kings. And these are not decisions that these people made at the door of the fiery furnace. These are not decisions that they will have just made on the hoof. These men know what it means to honor God and they have decided for him well in advance. And that's our third lesson from him, that they resolved to honor God, verse 8. And they knew what it meant to honor God. Now, I've always wondered, how did they know? How did they sift through the decision-making process and say, well, this is fine, but this isn't? Well, the thing is, I think they knew God's word. They were steeped in God's word. A couple of weeks ago, Simon Gillibow came and spoke to us on Deuteronomy 30, verses that Daniel and his friends would have been familiar with. And he said this, it says this in Deuteronomy, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands and decrees and laws. Love God, obey him, keep his commands. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. These young men knew God's word. They knew his commands. They knew how to live godly lives in a hostile climate. In a climate where everything around them was conspiring against their faith. An environment which was trying to get them to give their first allegiance to the Babylonians to honor their captors over and above their God. An environment where there was a slow drip, drip, drip feed of cultural pressures trying to get them to leave God behind. But you see, for Daniel and his friends, their choice to honor God came long before the moment that they were thrown into the flames or the lion's den. They resolved that God would be first in their heart and the choices that they made daily reflected that. Their faith was everything to them, not just an add-on. The seemingly small choice of diet that they made led to an assurance that God was looking out for them, that they could trust him no, no matter what. I wonder if we have that same resolve. Are we resolved to honor God? Remember what I said at the the start that our current situation plus a good knowledge of God's word plus personal obedience equals God being glorified. Time and time again in Daniel, the rulers acknowledge who God is as a result of their behavior. And I wonder how well we know God's word. Is it hidden in our hearts? Do we know how to please God? Years ago, uh, when I was well, when I was in um, youth group, actually, many years ago, I was um, I was forced to well, forced is a harsh word. I was encouraged strongly to learn verses from the Bible, 
I was slightly grumpy at the time, having to learn them. And then I did a beach mission, and they made me learn more. And I did um, a YWAM DTS, and they made me learn more. And each time, I was grumpy about having to learn them. But as an adult, I am so grateful that I was made to learn their verses. They mean that God speaks to me without hard work. When I'm cycling and I'm cross about something, uh, words come into my mind that challenge me. When I'm exhausted, I become encouraged by God's words to not become weary of doing good. When I'm angry, I remember that we shouldn't let the sun go down while we're still angry. Time and time again, God resets my tracking with scriptures that I learned as a child. He challenges me, he encourages me, he grows me, and he shapes me. That would be so much harder if I knew less scripture, and it would be so much easier if I knew more. Do we teach our children scriptures? Do we learn it ourselves? It's God's word hidden in our hearts? Do we allow God to speak to us using the words that he has written and spoken to us? Do they transform us? Are we allowing them to do that? Because if they're not hidden in our hearts, then it's harder work. And I would love to commend you to learn them. Learn scripture. Teach it to your children, to your grandchildren, to your family members. Make it a competition if you're competitive, like my family. Just my boys, I'm not at all competitive. (laughs) But it's important. Daniel and his friends knew how to honor God. And if we do not read God's word, if we do not know it, we will not know how to honor him. When we are put in situations of compromise then we will compromise more readily if we don't allow God's voice to speak. And I wonder also in the depths of of darkness when we have so many issues of mental health, and I'm no expert on this, but I do know that God offers us a hope and if we hide those in our hearts, even in the darkest moments, he can speak to us through those. We have to root ourselves in scripture And this is what Daniel and his friends did in order to prepare them for situations that I hope none of us will have to confront. But there will be other situations that we do have to confront. There will be challenges on our integrity. There will be decisions about our marriages. There will be um, opportunities for us to honor or dishonor God in our workplace. If we're not facing those challenges to our integrity, then we're probably not out there enough. But if we're not wrestling with those challenges to our integrity, then we're not going to be glorifying God. Because as we see with Daniel, the outcome of their integrity is that the glory is given to God. So our situation, wherever you are, wherever God has put you right now, Add to it a good knowledge of how to honor him, of his word, and implementing it, actually obeying God's command, the glory will automatically go to God. But we can't skip out those processes. There is no easy way to it. For 
For Daniel and his friends, faith was essential and was central to their lives. Our challenge is, is it to ours? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we don't have to play a guessing game of knowing what honors you, but we can immerse ourselves in your word and bring the glory to you. I pray that you would put in us a real thirst for that, that wherever we live our lives, whether it be in the workplace or in the home or in education or wherever, Lord, we ask that you would help us to honor you, that we would be known for our integrity, that we would be known for our faith, and that the glory would go to you. Amen.